Hello, kaiju lovers, heroes of the internet, and the listeners with attitude. Yes, what you're about to hear is going out to all of you. Yes, all three of my podcasts, and it's already on the Kaiju Weekly YouTube channel. So you know that it, you know it, it's going out to everything. <laughs> this is the audio version of a panel presentation I gave at JFAX in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It's a it's primarily an anime convention, although the name stands for Japanese Animation Film and Art Expo. And it was basically a crash course in the entire tokusatsu medium, which is why it's going out to all of the feeds, because <laughs> it is relevant to all of your interests. So... Without further ado, give this a listen. It should tide some of you over until some regular episodes start dropping a bit more frequently in the main feeds for these shows. Enjoy! Recording for the YouTubes. Hello, Kaiju Ramen <laughs> readers, viewers, and... The I'm also sending this out to the Monster Island Film Vault. So hello, kaiju lovers, <laughs> and hello to JFAX here. We're coming live from JFAX. It's been exciting. This is my fourth and final panel. I'm not exhausted. No, I'm caffeinated and motivated. All right, my name's Nathan March, and for those who don't know, it's a pleasure to see all of you here. I am the host of several podcasts, all related to Tokusatsu, Monster Island Film Vault, obviously, which is three parts film analysis and discussion. I do a lot of research on the history and culture behind each one, and also one part audio drama. I know that sounds weird, but if you listen, it'll make sense. And then I'm also the co-host, along with both Drew Dodgen for a while and then Travis Alexander for a while of Henshin Men. And I am also a co-host of The Power Trip, which is about Power Rangers and Super Sentai. Henshin Men's about Henshin Heroes. I co-host Power Trip with my friend Michael Hamilton. And I'm one of the recurring panelists on the Kaiju Weekly podcast, the latest iteration of it. All of which, except for Film Vault right now anyway, are part of the Kaiju Rama Podcast Network. I am the editor and a staff writer for Kaiju Ramen Magazine. Now that I have gotten all of that out of the way, <laughs> let's get started on the presentation, shall we? <laughs> all right. So, I know you're a tokusatsu fan. I know you have some familiar familiarity with tokusatsu. What about everyone else here? Good. <laughs> mm-hmm. Maybe us. Yeah. Max, I uh, I've seen a little bit of Max. I'm actually looking forward to seeing that one. It's got some top tier talent who worked on it, so I'm pretty excited about that. Well, it's interesting that this is the last of my panels here because this is the broadest out of all of them. The other ones were a bit more focused. One was strictly about kaiju. One was strictly about henshin heroes. One was even narrower than that, talked about Ultraman. Funny enough, it ended up being the longest one because Ultraman's a giant franchise. So this one, like I said, is this is the broader one. 
this would be a tokusatsu. I'll get into the definition here in a second, but it's basically the same thing as talking about anime. It's not a genre. It is a medium. All right. Which is a little bit of a misnomer. People do think anime is, you know, it's its own genre. And I get it because most anime, I would, well, I would argue all anime because there's stuff from foreign countries that looks like anime, inspired by anime, influenced by anime, but I would not say it quite qualifies. It's got there, there's just certain intangible things that you can't get there. I'm a little more lax on tokusatsu, though, defining tokusatsu because. You know, I'll show you here what I mean in a second. So a definition. We always got to start with definitions. I'm a teacher. <laughs> I work as a teacher. I've worked as a teacher. So I always try to start with concrete definitions so people understand what it is that I'm talking about and you know, it can engage with that. So best definition that I found in the research I was going over for tokusatsu is a Japanese term for live action films or television programs that make heavy use of practical special effects. Now, I... They said practical. I would argue that it just has to be special effects. It doesn't have to be strictly practical. I think that's a little bit of a misnomer. People, I think, are a little too narrow in their definition of that, especially since a lot of Japanese studios are moving in the and moving toward more modern special effects like CGI and mocap. But we'll get into that. I think a better way to to define it would just be special effects. So anything that would be considered a special effect would count as tokusatsu. And then there's some related terms that I wanted to share with everybody here that I found out about. You have tokushu jijutsu. If I say it wrong, I'm sorry. <laughs> Which means special technology. So what they use to make the special effects. There's also a toku, uh, tokugi which means special skill, so the actual craftsmanship of making these things. Tokushu satsue, or special photography, so it's how it's actually shot, so cinematography. And then, oh, that's the same thing, isn't it? Tokushu gijutsu. I put it in twice. Whoops. But that one uh, translated it as special techniques, so... My apologies for that. I should have paid a little bit more attention to my presentation, uh, to my PowerPoint. But then you also have a tokusatsu kantoku. I actually had not seen this term before. This is a special effects director. Or the example I gave, which is this gentleman right here, that's Eiji Subaraya, the creator of Ultraman. That's why you see Ultraman in the back there. But he also was the primary special effects director at Toho Studios in the 50s and 60s. We went over his life a little bit more during the Ultraman panel and you know but his him he is one of several names that you're going to see a lot in you know, when you're looking into Tokusatsu cuz he almost single-handedly created what everybody else is doing now. To accomplish, I said this in one of my other panels, to accomplish in the United States what A.G. Superaya did in Japan, you would have had to have created both King Kong and Superman. That's just the long and short of it. I mean, yeah. Ultraman's an institution, and basically everything he touched became some sort of pop culture icon. To varying levels. Ultraman is by far the biggest, and then Godzilla. But, you know... He's, he didn't, quote-unquote, create Godzilla, but like I said, he did the effects for it. 
So I want to do a little bit of a history on this because there's some really interesting cultural influences that went into what became tokusatsu. One is Bunraku. I talked about this in my kaiju panel. Has anyone here... Well, I know you have because you came to that panel. So you can't say anything. <laughs> Has anyone here ever heard of Bunraku? You sort of? Just a little bit? Anyone else? Bunraku. No? All right. So Bunraku is actually puppet theater. Japanese puppet theater. Started in the 17th century. But here's the thing that's distinctive from other forms of puppet theater. Because we as Westerners are used to thinking of puppet theater like marionettes. The puppeteers are up at the top. They're supposed to be hidden. You can't see them. The, uh, the strings come down and they use the strings to move the body parts of the puppet around. Well, in Bunraku, which... That picture right there in the center up at the top, that is a Bunraku performance. In Bunraku, you can actually see the performers. Now, I guess a lot of times they will wear black like that, so they're not drawing attention to themselves. So the focus is still on the puppet, but they're actually on stage, and the audience is perfectly fine with being able to see them. And since the puppets can't talk, they rely on a narrator called a teyu. And it's similar to suitmation. That's the technical term for, you know, like men in rubber suits. You know, the, the, the big, you know, the, when they put on the big rubber suits and they're pretending to be monsters. It's similar to that in the idea that, you know, the, the Japanese audience knows that's a man in a rubber suit and they're not put off by it. So it's not that they necessarily that they can see the performer like in Bunraku. But they understand that, that, that the, the performer is definitely there, and they, it doesn't bother them. They don't see it as, quote-unquote, unrealistic. Does that make sense? All right. And what's interesting is there's an independent film. It's about 30 minutes long called Howl from Beyond the Fog. It's a kaiju film set in the Meiji era, which is interesting. So it's a period piece. So it's 19th century Japan. And it is done entirely with puppets. It's almost like the purest tokusatsu you can get because <laughs> there are no human actors in it. It's all puppets. So if you're familiar with the like the Thunderbirds TV show, it's kind of like that, but with a kaiju and a really sad story. <laughs> it's very artsy and it's very sad. And then another theater influence on tokusatsu and there's a couple other ones that I went into with the kaiju presentation that are more specifically, uh, they, they could probably apply to tokusatsu in general as well, but they certainly played into tokusatsu. I mean, excuse me, the, uh, they played into kaiju, but yeah, anyway, I'll get off track here a little bit, but kabuki. We've all heard of kabuki in some form or another, I'm sure. It's very ubiquitous with Japanese culture. So it's a traditional dance drama. Its structure is one of a slow buildup to an explosive finale, followed by a quick, a quick resolution. And you see that a lot in the in kaiju films. That's why people joke that the best parts of kaiju films are the end. Which is why I am a stalwart defender of Godzilla 2014, because that's an American film, but it's structured like a Japanese story. 
you know, because you don't see the the you don't see Godzilla too much until the end, and then it just it just explodes. Everything goes nuts the last 20, 30 minutes. <laughs> don't worry about it. <laughs> and I, I would, for what I was reading, it's also an influence on Tokusatsu because of of its stylized action and and fight scenes. I've even heard. I should have mentioned this actually during the Henshin during the Henshin presentation. I've actually heard an you know, kind of an offhand remark about the Henshin pose for Common Rider being uh, inspired by Kabuki. Now I'm not sure exactly how that works. It was I was watching an interview with cast and crew from Common Rider Black on the Discotech DV, uh, Blu-ray and. They, one of them just said offhand, oh, yeah, the pose was inspired by Kabuki. Okay, can you elaborate on that a little bit? No, okay, we're moving on. All right, so, cool. All right, so, some early pioneers of tokusatsu. I have actually, did not, I had not actually not heard of these guys until I did research for this. But Shozo Makino... He was an early filmmaker, and he used tokusatsu in his Jidai Geki, or Edo period pieces. Yeah. So period films in the 1920s, so, uh, which were silent. And then you also had Yoshiro Edamasa, who was the director of The Great Buddha Arrival, which was the quote-unquote first kaiju film. Some might even go so far as to say it was the first uh, true tokusatsu film. Problem is, it's lost. It's because um, most Japanese films pre-World War II have been lost because they were most of them were destroyed during the war, which is unfortunate. Although, interestingly, The Great Buddha Arrival was the basis for a kind of remake sequel thing. It was an indie film from a couple of years ago. Got released by SRS Cinema, who also released Hal from Beyond the Fog. It's I'm not sure what to make of the movie. It's a strange little movie. It's not a bad movie, but it's a weird movie. Again, very artsy. Not sure what to make of it, but you know, if you want to bend your brain a little bit, give that one a watch. Akira Takarada's in it. You know, if you're familiar with Akira Takarada, who we unfortunately lost last year. He's been in a lot of Godzilla films. He's considered the Cary Grant of Japan. Met the guy once a few years ago. It was wonderful. But anyway, and some other influences that you, you have to bring up would be King Kong, 1933. I said this in my kaiju presentation. If you have not seen the 1933 King Kong, stop what you're doing and go watch it. It is a seminal film in every sense of the word. It is quite possibly the most... I don't know about the most important, but it's definitely one of the most influential films ever. It revolutionized everything. Basically, every modern filmmaker in some form or another has been inspired by it. And it was a huge boon to ad adventure and science fiction and basically everything. Like, the world of cinema. You know, the original King Kong is a linchpin. I can't emphasize that enough. And then he also had The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms with, from 1953, which had Ray Harryhausen's stop-motion special effects. So what Willis O'Brien did in King Kong was perfected by Ray Harryhausen because Ray Harryhausen was his protege. 
And I bring that up because both of these films inspired A.G. Tsuburaya. In fact, A.G. Tsuburaya credited the original King Kong because he had his own private print of King Kong, like a 35-millimeter print of King Kong, and he would screen it for people at his home. All right? He credited that with inspiring him to become a filmmaker, to get into special effects. So, these are some nice forerunners here. A.G. Tsuburaya was doing some special effects work for Toho, very early on with this, like he made propaganda films, and you know, and during the in the forties, and the miniatures were so impressive it actually fooled the Allies. They thought they had real footage <laughs> of actual ships and airplanes. It was that good back then, apparently. And then you get to the monster boom of the nineteen. Well, it, I put it as fifty four to eighty nine. Basically, the, well, no, it was really like the 50s and 60s, but I'm putting that as I'm putting Showa down for that 1954. I should clarify a little bit for those of you who've come to my other panels. I'm sorry you have to hear this again, <laughs> but I say Showa. Showa is how, well, let me back up. Showa goes back to the Japanese calendar system, they go by the reigns of the emperors. Whereas we use the Roman calendar, and you know, so we would say you know 1954, but they would say it would be Showa, you know, this number of his reign. So the Showa era technically started in 1926, so they would call that Showa one, and then that goes to 1989, and then there's another era that started after it was called Heisei. We'll get to that in a moment, but they would say instead of it being 1989, that would be Heisei one. And fun fact. Emperor Showa is the longest reigning emperor in Japanese history. And he was technically the last one who held any real power. Because after World War II, when that is a whole shebang unto itself, bit of a can of worms, but fascinating piece of history. It was during the right after World War II, during the Allied occupation of Japan, where the Japanese monarchy became like the British monarchy. They reigned but did not rule. They had no real power. Japan was governed by a prime minister after that. Anyway, moving on. So, obviously, the one that really probably kicked off the whole thing, truly, was Godzilla 1954. That There's a lot to say about that movie. That's a whole presentation unto itself. And then you had the first example of another popular genre in tokusatsu, that being superheroes. So we had the first one on on screen, anyway. Not the first one in comic books. The first, quote-unquote, Japanese superhero is a guy named Golden Bat, who you know was in comic books before this. But the first one on the movie screen was a guy named Supergiant. That's the black and white picture there. So he was part of a film serial, which was like TV before, it was basically like TV before TV. So they would play like something that would be like 10 to 20 minutes long before a main feature. And then it would end on a cliffhanger. And then you had to come back to the theater the next week to see another movie and see part two and, and so on. And it would like Flash Gordon is a example of that from the United States. It was very popular in the, thir in the 30s, especially in the United States anyway. So he had film serials from 50, 50, 1954 to 1959. And then on TV, you had the first TV superhero, which was Moonlight Mask. I don't have a picture of Moonlight Mask here. I did during the Henshin presentation. 
the is he a henshin hero i don't know because uh, he doesn't really transform on screen it's more like here's this guy and he's like oh no stuff is you know bad guys are doing things and he would disappear conveniently and then the superhero would show up so it's this big mystery like who's really moonlight mask but he rode a motorcycle which paved the way for common rider later so you know kind of mention him as a potential example now obviously ultraman 1966 that was a big moment in the history of tokusatsu you can learn more about ultraman in my ultraman panel and then 1967 is often dubbed the year of the kaiju by a lot of tokusatsu fans because it, that was the year every major Japanese studio and two Korean studios, South Korean studios, released a kaiju film. Five. Well, there were five that year. And then you had TV shows like Ultra 7 where there were kaiju on it. So they were everywhere. It was like superheroes are now in the United States. It was, they were just everywhere. And if I remember correctly, see if I can rattle off all those titles for you, you know, all seven of them. So in Japan, Toho, Toho, because they're the big dog, they had two. They had King Kong Escapes and Son of Godzilla. That was the Godzilla film that year. And then Shojiku had the X from Outer Space, which is wacky. <laughs> Literally has a scene where a spaceship has a hole in the hole and it's saved by plugging it with someone's butt. Yes, that happened because physics be darned. <laughs> and then Nikatsu had Gap of the Trifibian Monster. And then who was the last one? Oh, Daie had Gamma versus Gauss. That was their Gamma film that year. And then you might be thinking, well, what about Toei? Toei helped a Korean studio make Yonkiri Monster, a monster from the Deep in South Korea. And then there was Wang Magui. Space Monster Wing Magui, also made in South Korea that year, which was considered a lost film for years until, again, SRS Cinema released it just a few months ago on Blu-ray. It's basically a... It's basically King Kong of King with aliens. Space Monster Wing Magui. It's crazy. That one's goofy. Just recorded a podcast episode on it, actually, this week. And then some other examples, you know, going on at this time. So you had Mothra, Rodan, Gamera. I mentioned Gamera already. Daimajin. Daimajin is an interesting one. That was a film trilogy, all made 1966. It's about a, it's a period piece set in 16th century Japan. It's about a statue that comes to life and smites evildoers. Yeah, basically there's a, there's a big old statue erected in... The, a village someplace, the villagers are being oppressed, they beseech the statue, statue comes to life, kills all the bad guys. It's very satisfying, actually, watching that. And then you had Ambassador Magma, or Space Giants is what it was called in the United States, on TV at the time. So, like I said, it was, there's a lot to talk about You know, with the 60s. A lot of seminal things are going on. But then, in the 70s, you had the Henshin Boom. Which, again, I did a whole presentation just on Henshin heroes, so you can get more details there. But in the Henshin boom, that's when you started seeing a lot of the superheroes showing up on TV. People were gravitating more toward television than they were the cinema. In fact, at this point, I mean, like, Gamera squeaked by with a couple of movies in the 70s, and then the studio burned down because employees were angry, and they... 
you know, uh, and then they didn't make anymore. And when Toho's other franchises went by the wayside, you know, because in 1970 the Japanese film industry crashed, well, Godzilla's like, I'm not stopping. And then they made five more Godzilla movies in the 70s, which that that's a small miracle, to be honest. But, you know, like I said, TV is where people are going at this point. So you had Kamen Rider, 1971. That's him right there. Yeah. Your man, your Kamen Rider, Kamen Rider guy. All right. Yeah. You look like you could be a Kamen Rider. Yeah. Got that Takeshi Hongo look, you know, like Fujioka. Yeah. You got the look. You got the look. <laughs> yeah. And it's, if you're familiar with, and if you are, I'm sorry. Saban's best writer. We don't talk about Furbus. <laughs> common writer is the basis for masked writer because that's what common means. It means mask or masked. Like if you watch Sailor Moon in the Japanese, it's tuxedo common, not tuxedo mask. So generally speaking, because common writer is a whole franchise unto itself, is generally a motorcycle riding grasshopper themed superhero. They diverge from it in some cases. It's like most of the new stuff, they get away from that because motorcycle laws in Japan are stupid. And I, it's, it's, they're like, screw bugs. We're just going to do other things. And I'm like, these aren't common riders anymore. They, they, they're Sentai with one. <laughs> they're a Sentai team of one at this point. Yeah. Opinions. Anyway, uh, created by Shotaro Shinomori. Get used to hearing that name. Because he was a manga artist and writer, and good lord, he created a bunch of stuff. He's like the Jack Kirby of Japan, basically. Created a bunch of tokusatsu. If, you know, if he, he's created some animes too, like Cyborg 009 is one of his. And then you also have Kakaida. Uh, Kakaida is the red and blue guy there. He's a superhero android fighting an evil secret society. Sounds familiar. Oh, wait. Created by Shinomori? Now I understand. He likes certain tropes. What can I say? Then you also have Mirror Man. I don't have a picture of Mirror Man here, but that was a Subaraya creation. He's a, he's a bit like Ultraman, but he's Mirror Man because he can travel through mirrors like it's a portal network. Or actually, it's not just mirrors. It's just reflective surfaces. So he can like bounce around, and get to where he needs to be. But, you know, the second half of his show, this was in the early 70s, it got more like Ultraman because the the ratings weren't quite there. So Super Agile, like, yeah, just make it more like Ultraman. And I'm like, suddenly your show is less interesting because I have watched it. And I'm like, it's better when it wasn't just an Ultraman clone. <laughs> what the heck, Supro? And then, obviously, Super Sentai. You can't talk about Tokusatsu without talking about Super Sentai. And that's who that is right there at the top there. That is the first Super Sentai team. If you want to call them this, you could say they're Power Rangers. But, you know, the first Power Ranger... Well, the first Sentai that became Power Rangers was Zhu Ranger. That was in the early 90s. So they're tangentially related to Power Rangers. But they were the first. Well, like I said, launched in 1975. Also created by Shotaro Shinomori. You can't get the TV show, but you can read the manga that he made for it. it. That has been published here in the U.S., finally. And there's been one almost every year since 1975. I think they've only taken one year off. 
It's ridiculous, but gives me the impression that Toei just treats Super Sentai like it's just product that they can shell out. But Kamen Rider, oh boy, Kamen Rider is their favorite son. They're very protective of Kamen Rider. But I can understand why he was assaulted by Furbus. Anyway, <sighs> that will never not get old. <laughs> Like I said, source material for Power Rangers. A few other examples that you saw during this time, especially on TV, you had Anazuman, Spectre-Man, Iron King. There's just too many to count. The thing is, though, is in the 70s, Tokusatsu was moving in a slightly, well, not slightly, was moving in a different direction. So it was, disaster movies were actually more popular. Disaster and some horror that were more popular in the 70s. You know, especially with films. So, you know, which I'll give to get to some examples of that here in a moment. So then you had a bit of, uh, you know, a dark age. Tokusatsu just wasn't as popular at the time. Talked about this in the, the, you know, the Henshin one. Anime was more popular. So there were a lot of Tokusatsu franchises like Kamen Rider, Ultraman, that went on hiatus because, among other things, they couldn't compete with anime. Because anime was, it was cheaper to produce and more people were watching that. But in the meantime, you had the Heisei Godzilla series that started in 1984. You had Metal Heroes that started in 1982 with Space Sheriff Gavin. Yeah, that's Gavin there on the far left. And in the center at the top there, that's the first of the Heisei Godzilla films. It's the poster. It's Return of Godzilla or Godzilla 1985 in the United States. Yeah, it was released in 84 in Japan. It was Godzilla 1985 because it was released in the year 1985 because they were creative with titles back then. <laughs> Super Sentai continued. Power Rangers started in 1993. And then this point, there wasn't a lot of Kamen Rider except for a handful of movies. But you did have Kamen Rider Black and Black RX which are incredible. I've seen all of Black. I, I've seen a little bit of Black RX. It's some of the best Kamen Rider that you're going to see, especially Black. And, like, and you know, things like disaster films are still popular in the cinema at this point. And then 1996, you had Ultraman Tiga, which jump-started Ultraman back up. That's Tiga down there at the bottom. I, I'm watching... Ultraman Tiger right now. It's, I've seen a bit of it before, but this, I'm actually sitting out watching the whole thing, and my goodness, it's good. <laughs> it's, good. it's good. I think it's going to go down as one of my favorites. And then Gamera made his grand return in 1995 with Gamera, Guardian of the Universe, and you want to talk about a comeback story. Gamera went from having one of the worst kaiju films ever made in 1980 that was 90% stock footage with a Star Wars knockoff thrown into the middle of it plus three hot chicks and spandex so it's supposed to be a superhero movie too it is the and all the special effects the new special effects that they made were all shot on video so it makes it look incredibly strange it makes no freaking sense and then he makes a comeback 15 years later in one of the best kaiju films I've ever seen. In fact, it kicked off a trilogy, and that trilogy is considered some of the best tokusatsu and kaiju you're ever going to see. Don't call it a comeback. Yeah, 
<laughs> what can I say? All right, and then you get to the modern era. So I mentioned the time frame for Heisei. We, uh, we are currently in the Reiwa era, because that started in 2019. And I remember that was kind of a big deal. There was some actual news coverage. We were like, yeah, they're... You know, they're you know passing the throne to the next emperor in Japan. It's not something that happens very often, obviously. And at this point, you know, especially if you're looking at just kind of Tokusatsu at large, is being dominated by a lot of classic franchises. So you have Super Sentai and Power Rangers still going on, and those are all the different eras of Power Rangers. I had to include that because I do a Power Rangers podcast, so I have to bring that up. So you had the Saban era, ninety three to two thousand three, Disney era. 2003 to 2010, Neo-Saban, arguably the worst out of all the eras, <laughs> from 2010 to 2019, and now we're in the Hasbro era, 2019 to present. Yes? We'll talk about that when I get to questions. But, you know, don't be afraid to, you know, talk back a little bit. I'm a teacher, like I said, and I do like interacting with people as I'm talking. I don't want to just lecture at you. And then you also, at this point, you had the Godzilla series going on, and there's been basically three of them in the modern era, you know, you know, after the, the Heisei series. So you had the Millennium series, which started in 1999, went to about 2004. You have MonsterVerse going on right now. And there's also a Reiwa series, but Reiwa's... It's a little weird with Reiwa. They include Shin Godzilla, which technically predates it, but you know the first entry in the Heisei series was technically during Showa as well, but they grandfathered it in. And the the Reiwa, the quote unquote Reiwa series for Godzilla has been all over the place. It's just it's been a lot of experimentation. Shin Godzilla is pretty experimental in a lot of ways, and you had the anime trilogy, and now we have Godzilla Zero coming up pretty, you know, later this year, and it's just like I said, it's been all over the place. Ultraman continued to had a couple different eras. You had the Heisei era. Well, the yeah, they call it the Heisei era, even though it, the, you know, uh, after, in 2013 they they started what they call New Generation Heroes that overlap with Heisei and Reiwa. But you know, it's a new branding that they've been sticking with since 2013. And then I've, Common Rider is a little bit different. Common Rider in the you know in the 21st century has three eras so far. Heisei, Neo Heisei, and Reiwa. So 2000-2009 for Heisei, Neo Heisei is 2009-2019, and then 2019 to present is Reiwa. I don't fully understand how all of that works. I'm more familiar with Ultraman. But, hey, you know, to each their own, right? So techniques that you're going to commonly see in Tokusatsu. Suitmation is the most obvious one because that's the most unique to it. Not to say there has that you don't see suitmation in other places. You know, classic Doctor Who's. There's some American examples of suitmation, but Tokusatsu Japanese special effects is very well known for using men in suits. And this picture I have right there to illustrate that that is Haruro Nakajima wearing a god's half of a Godzilla suit. So like if there were shots that we're just going to be Godzilla stomping on a street. They're doing close-ups of that. He would just wear a half suit for that one because these things weighed as much as 200 pounds, if not more. And it's all solid rubber. And he would like sweat out gallons 
at, you know, like they would squeeze just whole bottles of sweat out of those suits after he would wear them for a day. He could only wear them a few minutes at a time when he had the full suit because it was just hot. And he, if he stayed in it too long, he'd pass out. So I wanted to get the suit. You could actually see what it looks, you know, see him actually in the suit, you know, doing things there. And then you see a lot of miniatures. That's why I have the miniature cityscape over there. So they would have the suit actors stomping through there. They would rig them to explode and things like that. Some studios were better than others when it came to the miniatures. I would say Toho in the Toho is is excellent at especially in the '60s. And Super Eye Productions on TV is really good. After that, you get varying levels of success. Yeah. How much it would cost in terms of money? I, I don't know offhand, but I've heard some estimates about how much some episodes of Ultraman, different Ultraman series have cost. And some of them are ridiculous. And I don't, I'm like, I don't know how accurate that is, but... Ultraman has, generally speaking, been considered, you know, like expensive television. Comet Rider, like they had almost no money by comparison, like about half the budget, I think, maybe when they were lucky with Comet Rider. Yeah. Right. Well, they 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 were getting by on sheer grit and determination, which is what I appreciate about the original Common Rider. But I'm going to be honest with you, you know, like Toei, like when Toei does miniatures, I'm not that impressed. I mean, even if you watch the '90s stuff, like you know, with if you watch Power Rangers, I'm just like I'm not impressed. Like the, those buildings look really thin by comparison. But if you watch Ultraman, they're really sturdy and they're made to look realistic you know, to a certain extent. You know, and things like that. I don't know. Like I said, there's varying levels of success. It really boils down to budget. The DIA wasn't quite there until you got to the 90s, and then they really got the high, kicked it into high gear. But that's mostly thanks to Shinji Aguchi on those 90s Gamera films. Man knew what he was doing. They, those movies were made on less money in the 90s than the Heisei Godzilla films, and the special effects in the Gamera movies look better. I don't get it. But it, so it's not strictly money. It's it boils down to what kind of talent that you have and how much time you give them. So I would say time is more important than money. Talent is more impo- important than money. Like I said, watch the Hase Gamera trilogy and just remind yourself that was half the budget. Half the budget of a of a 90s Godzilla film. And they blow the God, 90s Godzilla films out of the water. I know that might be a hot take for some, but deal with it. Okay, deal with it. I've actually gotten into some arguments with some of my co-hosts on the podcast, right? Because I say, sorry, guys, Gamera Trilogy better than Heisei Heisei Godzilla. Fight me. Anyway, they also like to use optical effects, particularly Toho because Eiji Tsuburaya and on Ultraman because Eiji Tsuburaya actually owned an optical printer. There were maybe three of them in existence. In the 60s. And one of them was owned by Disney. Okay. H.G. Super I had one in Japan. Supposedly there were only three I guess. 
Yeah. There's, they got more optical printers later. But in the 60s, he had one of three, which is why you get effects like that for Godzilla, the animated atomic rays. Now, there is generally an emphasis on practical effects, which are largely due to budget constraints, cultural influences. We talked about some of the cultural influences, and I would say A.G. Superai's influence because he worked with, pra with practical effects like that, suits, miniatures, optical. It also is partly because when he wanted to make the original Godzilla, famously, he wanted to do it with stop motion, just like Ray Harryhausen and... Willis O'Brien, but to do what they needed to do, it would have taken him gobs of money and about seven years, he said. So, well, we don't have that time or money. So, like, okay, what are we going to do? Rubber suit. So, that's why it's such a tradition in Japan to do this, in large part. Now, lay, uh, in more modern tokusatsu, you are seeing more CGI, much to the, to the chagrin of some people anyway, and you're seeing motion capture. And here's another hot take for you. I don't mind motion capture. Especially in these Japanese things. Like Shin Godzilla was done with motion capture. This picture right here, that is the motion capture actor that they used for Shin Godzilla. And he took it very seriously. He went full tilt method acting with this. He actually put a tail, spines, and a mask on to do this. And it's mocap. He didn't have to do any of that, but he did it because he was taking it that seriously. Like I said, method acting. I promise you right now, if Haro Nakajima was still alive, the original Godzilla suit actor, if he was still alive and doing suit acting, he would love mocap. Because he can do all the same things he did before, but he doesn't carry three, you know, not three, but 200 pounds of rubber on his back. He would love it. He would love it. I would so I argue that mocap is the spiritual successor, I guess we could say, to suitmation. Because you need to do the, the exact same things that went into the art of suit acting go into mocap, near as I can tell. So you know, like TJ Storm, who does who did the mocap for Godzilla and the Monsterverse, he's a suit actor, as far as I care. I mean, that's what the guy is known for doing. He would do mocap and he would do suit acting. That he made a whole career out of that. So, you know, like I said, that's a hot take for some people, but I frankly don't care. But I say that, you know, a lot of movie studios in Japan are leaning toward the CGI and mocap route. But TV, they're sticking with the traditional. And if you look at, like, Ultraman, like Subaraya, they have it down. They, they use some CGI, they use some optical effects, but they keep using suits for the Ultraman and for the monsters, and it's some of the best you're going to see. It really is. Like, they have perfected it. So, you want the more traditional tokusatsu? Watch Japanese television. So, genres. This is why I say tokusatsu is a medium. It, you know, it's not a genre unto itself, just like anime. Because there are different kinds of anime, right? You, you know, you got fantasy anime, action anime, science fiction anime, magical girl, you know. All kinds of different kinds of anime. Slice of life anime. Well, tokusatsu is the same way. We've already talked about kaiju and superhero because those are the two most prominent. But I wanted to give you some examples of some other ones. 
So you have science fiction, so stuff like Atragon, that's from the early 60s. It's one of my favorites, actually. It's kind of a 20,000 leagues under the sea kind of a story, but with a flying submarine with a drill on the front. Who's going to argue with that? <laughs> or, and I had to include this, it's not a good movie, but it's one of my guilty pleasures, partly because one of the characters in this movie is my quote-unquote on-mic producer on one of my podcasts. Spoiler warning, he's a sound effect on the air. You know, I hit a button and play a sound effect. And then the joke is everybody on the show can understand it, but people hearing can't. <laughs> and it's the token white guy in this movie, but it's the war in space. That's the poster at the top all the way to the left. It's basically a Star Wars knockoff. It's from the late 70s. Directed by June Fukuda, who directed a handful of Godzilla films. It's hard to come by, but if you can see it, it's fun. Like I said, it's not good, but it's fun. <laughs> and then you also have fantasy films. So the, the Magic Serpent, which is from the mid-60s, produced by Toei. If you're familiar with the story of Jiraiya, Jiraiya the Ninja, it's based on those stories. And then the one I have here, which is the poster all the way on the top right, that is The Three Treasures, which is basically the Ten Commandments of Japan. It's a religious epic. It's three hours long, and it's got, uh, it's got a Toshiro Mufune in it who's a big-time actor in Japan. It was like the one time they pried him away from Kurosawa. He's like, here, make this. And he plays the legendary first emperor of Japan. And you get to see the Japanese creation myth done in tokusatsu. You get to see Orochi, the eight-headed dragon. You get uh, like all kinds of crazy things go on in this thing. You can also include war films as tokusatsu because... They need to do special effects, miniatures with the ships and the airplanes. And both of the examples I have in here are directed by Ashiro Honda, who directed a lot of Godzilla movies. He did dramas and war films before he got Godzilla. And they're, they're called War. Uh, one is Farewell Rabal. The one I have the poster here, which is the top center, is called Eagle of the Pacific. And these are actually based on real history, real people. And then if you're a fan of J-horror... J-horror is tokusatsu because they still need to use special effects on those things. So Juwan, The Grudge, a lot of these have been remade in the United States. The picture I have here for that is Ringu, or The Ring. So that's the top, uh, excuse me, that's the bottom left one. And then disaster movies, which were all too common for a hot second there. Thank you, Roland Emmerich. <laughs> those actually in the 70s, were way more popular in Japan than kaiju, and at least at the cinema, they were way more popular than kaiju. So one that I uh, I have on here is Prophecies of Nostradamus, which is actually a banned movie. You can track it down online. I've seen it. It's a weird movie. And it got banned for very Japanese reasons, and talking about that would be a whole presentation unto itself. But the one I'm including here, which is that last poster there, that is Submersion of Japan or Japan Sinks. It's based on a novel. This is one of the highest grossing movies 
in Japanese history. 1973, made by Toho. The special effects in this were so good that they got recycled in a bunch of other movies after that as stock footage. So you can definitely tell that the money went to that movie and not to Godzilla vs. Megalon. That was the Godzilla film that year. Yeah, but the effects in that are incredible. It's a very... It's a very Japanese sort of story. The premise is that due to a bunch of volcanic and earthquake activity, the island nation of Japan is slowly sinking. There was an anime actually made about it. It was uh, just Japan Sinks 2020 a couple years ago. Did the basically the same thing, although it's a little bit looser of an adaptation of the novel because I've read the novel. But the idea is that Japan, the nation, is slowly sinking into the water, sinking into the ocean. And that first thing they have to figure out is, do we tell people? And then if when we tell people, what are we going to do about it? So a lot of it is, can we evacuate the country fast enough? And then the question becomes, where do they go? So there's a large part of the movie where they're talking to other countries and negotiating with them. It's like, can we take some of our people over to the Australian outback? Can we send people to this country or that country? Like It's millions of people being displaced, and they will no longer have a country to go to. Their country is gone. So it's a fascinating movie. It's a fascinating movie. It's, I've heard people describe it as a kaiju movie without a kaiju <laughs> because it's just all of the environmental things that are affecting Japan and causing all these disasters. And the disaster footage in this is incredible. Like the miniature work that they do, you know, to show all of these cities being devastated as the country is sinking is, I understand why it kept getting recycled for like 10 years after this, because it's really good. It's really, really, really good. Unfortunately, it hasn't been released in the United, well, it got released in the United States, but it was a horribly edited version on TV, but you know... If you can get your hands on the original Japanese version, it's well worth a watch, and I will petition Criterion myself to get it released over here. I'm serious. I think it's an important movie that should be over here. So just a few notable names in the world of tokusatsu. This is by no means, none of the stuff I'm giving you right now is by any means an exhaustive list, but these are names you're going to see a lot. So Eiji Tsuburaya, we talked about him already. Tomoyuki Tanaka who is a big producer at Toho, and he's credited as the creator of Godzilla. Shiro Honda, that's this gentleman at the top left. He was, Like I said, he directed a lot of Godzilla films. And then Keita Amemia, who's worked in some in anime, but he's worked a lot on Kamen Rider and Super Sentai as a director and a character designer. And he's made some of his own films as well. He created Garo. If you're familiar with Garo and movies like Zerum, we talked about Zerum a little bit this morning. And I'm trying to think what else what else has he done? Those are the big ones. Zerum actually has an anime spinoff. It was an OVA series called Iria, which is getting released, re-released, I should say, on Blu-ray, actually, pretty soon here. I think it's Discotech. I think it's Discotech who's doing that one. So look him up sometime. His character designs are iconic. Oh, uh, Kiter. It was a tokusatsu film he made in the mid-90s. 
which actually was a character from Kakaida that he reimagined. It was a villain that he reimagined as an anti-hero. It's about as 90s edgelord extreme as you can get, and I kind of love it because it's actually well-implemented 90s edgelord extreme. <laughs> and then Hideaki Anno, everyone here, if you're an anime fan, you know who Hideaki Anno is. Among other things, the man created Neon Genesis Evangelion. But he's also worked on some tokusatsu. He, he, he made a Cutie Honey movie, which has infinitely more dignity than the source material. Yeah, it's actually, it's like the one piece of Cutie Honey media that's not trashy. <laughs> I don't want, and he made Shin Godzilla, and he, he directed that and wrote it. He wrote, but he didn't direct, so as far as we know, Shin Ultraman. That was his buddy, Shinji Aguchi, who I've met. He's a cool fella. He's as big a nerd as all the rest of us. The, he also worked with Ano on a lot of different things, including Evangelion. But he, uh, Ano wrote Shin Ultraman and did the mocap, some of the mocap for Ultraman in that. Because one, he's crazy. Two, he made an Ultraman fan film when he was a really young lad back in the early 80s because <laughs> he loves Tokusatsu. Yeah. So, I mean, that goes without saying. And then Shotaro Shinomori, I mentioned him before. Oh, yeah, the guy with the mustache here, that's Keita Amemi. I should have pointed that out. And then Shotaro Shinomori, manga artist, creator of Kamen Rider, Super Sentai, and a bunch of other things. So, like I said, by no means an exhaustive list, but that gives you, you know, a few names that you're going to see pretty often. And that's... You know, there's a lot of others, and if you're looking at like the independent scene, you're going to come across some other noteworthy names and things like that, especially if you like look at SRS cinema releases. So, like I said, that was a lot. That was a lot, and I might be going a little over time now. I don't know when the next panel is meeting here. I think we have a little bit of a buffer, but does anybody have questions? I'd like to pick my brain a little bit here. The other guys left already, which is too bad, but, you know, because I told them to wait. <laughs> Huh? Oh, you got to go? All right. Thanks for coming, man. I appreciate it. Ultraman. Ultraman. Part of it is availability because there's just way more of it to get. Toei is being weird with how they're trying to roll out Kamen Rider right now. They're splitting it up between multiple distributors because they basically just make people do bidding wars for it. That's They're very stingy. They're incredibly stingy, which is like, you know, like you look at like the Common Rider Black Blu-ray from Discotheque. First off, nobody saw that coming, and you get it, and it's it's the new standard for Tokusatsu releases in the United States, as far as I care. But the two mini movies that they made as tie-ins while the show was on not included. Why? Because Toei makes them pay separate licensing fees for those. So they're going to let them have the show. But Superaya, when they worked with Mill Creek, they said, pay us a lump sum and you get the whole franchise. So that's why when you look at a Mill Creek Ultraman release, if there are tie-in movies, unless there's something that prevents them from doing it, like with Tiga, you get all the movies that go with the show when you buy the show. Tsuburaya's Tokusatsu Santa Claus by comparison. They're just like, here, have it. We love you. We haven't been able to do this for years because legal shenanigans with other studios. 
yeah, so part like I said, part of its availability, but I just I was exposed to Ultraman sooner than Common Rider. And so that's a part of it as well. I like Common Rider, but just not as much as Super Sentai. You know, it's I love comic books, but there are just certain characters that I gravitate toward compared to others. Even though I've read a lot of different characters. So does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Do you have something? Mm-hmm. Oh, favorite season? Yeah, I didn't get to answer. I didn't get to answer. I uh, didn't get to answer him. That if you see him, you can let him know. I would say because it's funny to bring that up because my my friend Michael and I on the power trip when we got to when we covered all of the Power Rangers franchise because we did an episode per season. When we got to the end of it, we made a tier list. You know, like S tier all the way down to F. You know, so S A B C D F. Yeah, we actually used that. We didn't tell each other what we had because we wanted to see how different our lists might have ended up being. And I can tell you what, I had five on S tier. And I can tell you what those are. In Space, Lost Galaxy, although I had to be persuaded to put Lost Galaxy there. Uh, SPD, Time Force, and RPM. So those are my top five. Doggy Kruger is a badass. I reserve that term for people who really deserve it. Doggy Kruger is a mother trucking badass. I will die on that hill. All right. There are some great sixth Rangers and the and the and Power Rangers. Doggy Kruger is the best. I mean, the man literally took out 100 baddies with a counter. Like, it's like, because that was, that's from the Sentai. That's from Decca Ranger. It's like they had, like he says, like the bad guy says, I have 100 foot soldiers. And he says, I'll take them all out. And they bother to put a counter up. And they actually, just to prove, like, yeah, he's actually taking out 100 guys. Like, they, cho they choreographed this fight where he's literally taking out 100 guys and they're counting down. And I'm like, balls. The balls on that man, that dog man. I just, Doggy Kruger could have been an incredibly stupid character, and he's not an incredibly stupid character. He's the opposite of that. I love Doggy Kruger so much. We also did, in the same episode, we did what we call our Ranger Dream Team. We had a listener who told us that, you know, there, a way to do it. There were some rules like you, you only have one of each color. You could, and you can't have more than one from the same team. Okay, so like if you pick Jason as your Red Ranger, you can't have Tommy as, you know, as your Sixth Ranger, or you can't have Zach as your Black Ranger or something like that. And my Sixth Ranger was Kruger, to the surprise of no one. <laughs> to the surprise of no one. However, however, both... Michael and I did, partly out of respect, we both did have Tommy Oliver on our teams, just in different roles. I try to remember, I think, I think if I remember correctly, I think Michael had him as the, as the Green Ranger. And I had him as, I think it was, I want to say Dino Thunder Black. I don't know, I'd have to look at the list again. I have to look at the list again. I can remember most of the characters I had on my team, but 
can't remember. I think, I'm pretty sure that's where it was. Dino Thunder Black. I'm pretty sure it was Dino Thunder Black. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> so there, that, that, that answers your question. What other questions do you have? Like what? On Netflix? Oh, the Ultraman, which I uh, or the Star Ultraman. It's that's how it gets stylized sometimes. I actually just watched that a few months ago. I actually am nicer to the to the Godzilla anime trilogy than most of my friends. Well, that most people in general. They've listened to my my film vault episode where I basically spend about forty minutes defending those things, and I think I I was told I did a very worthy effort on that. So I'm nicer to that. I like Singular Point, partly because I'm smart enough to understand most of what's going on, but barely. <laughs> Talking to somebody who was raised on Star Trek, I'm used to techno babble, but good lord. I watched that thing dubbed. I don't even want to think about watching that with subtitles. <laughs> My brain would melt, I think. I was barely able to, to process it when it was dubbed. So I liked it. I understand why some people didn't because it's it's still not exactly what they want with a Godzilla anime. It was I th it's liked more than the anim than the movie trilogy, but it's still not exactly what people quote unquote want. Whatever that is. As for Netflix Ultraman, first season's all right. Second season, God. It's the shortest one and it's the biggest slog. But season three was a banger. I, I, I had to make myself stop watching it because it just kept going and going and going. And it's throwing in some nice Easter eggs if you're a fan of the, of the older stuff. I need to read the manga that it's based on. I'm really curious about that manga. Yeah, I, I don't know how many volumes they're up to right now. I think they just released another one. Like the latest one, I think it was just a few months ago. In the United States, I'd have to double check that. But I thought that was pretty good. The, there's also been examples where they take an anime and turn it into tokusatsu, which is... Uh, uh, Hakai, what, what, which one? No, no, uh, that was uh, uh, that was a character on Kakaider. No, I'm talking about like there's a live action Bleach. You know, there's a there's live there's live action Kenshin movies. You know, those seem to fare a little bit better. Believe it or not, there's a lot. I'm not kidding you. There is a live action Sailor Moon. I've watched some clips. It's weird. Some things just don't work. Some things in anime just don't work in live action, especially if you adapt it literally, and that was one of them. Anyway, it looks like people are coming in for the next panel. It's probably as good a time as any to wrap up. If you want to talk to me some more after this, let me know. I've got stuff up here with some, you know, some business cards from the table for Nerd Chapel, which I've been helping out my friend Eric out with that, and you can get QR codes to Kaiju Ramen, media and to the monster Island film falls you want to learn more about my stuff and yeah there's all the logos for all of those and 
you know, there's my sources in case you want to do your own research on this. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nate Marchand. If you want to join the discussion and be heard on the show, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Monster Island Film Vault and on Twitter, where our handle is at TheMonsterIsla1. You can subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, and TikTok. Follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASAJimmy and our many other colorful characters using the links in the show notes. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wanderer on the Offensive, live edit by B33J, Serax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus, and The Opened Way, Battle with the Colossus, by Koatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus. All film and audio clips belong to their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and or Podchaser to spread the word about the show. You can also support us by joining MIFV Max on Patreon. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara! Sayonara!